Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now My show is brought to you by my lovely patrons. Thank you to my newest Patreon supporter, Doug. All of my Patreon supporters got some Halloween gift boxes a couple weeks ago. And I'm going to be doing the same thing for Christmas because I also love Christmas. So if you sign up by December 15th, you're going to be getting a little something extra in your stocking from me. My Patreon supporters also have access to bonus episodes and deep discounts in the Threadless store. So check out my Patreon if you would like to support the show. And if you would like to support the show in a different way, check out my promotional links in the show notes. Right now I've got a deal going with Blue Apron where you can get $30 off your first order when you click my link. And I have a special deal going with Audible where you can get two free audiobooks when you sign up for a free 30-day trial. That's right, everything is free. The books are yours to keep and absolutely no obligation. And you'll be supporting the show. So click the link and check it out if you'd like to get a couple of free audiobooks and support this podcast in the process. I also wanted to give a quick update on a case I covered a couple episodes ago, the Justin Schneider case, the uh, guy that strangled the woman and then pleasured himself on her face. Well, the judge that let him have that sweetheart deal was just voted out. So that is awesome. It makes me happy to see just this instant karma occur. So that is just one good thing that came out of that whole awful story. So with all of that out of the way, let's get into tonight's case. In this series, I will be covering a serial killer, which I previously discussed. However, these are entirely new episodes on the subject, totally rewritten from the ground up. My primary resource remains the same, and I must mention it because it's one of the best true crime books I've ever read. It's called Ice and Bone by Monty Francis. So without further ado, let's get into the case of Joshua Wade, a twisted, brutal serial killer that preyed upon the vulnerable. And this case hits literally too close to home for me, as Wade lived just a mile or two away from me, and it's likely we shopped at the same stores, and it's just disturbing to think that you've lived within walking distance of a serial killer. And it's even worse considering the fact that his final victim was his next-door neighbor. But we will get to her story in time. And before we even discuss Joshua Wade, I'd like to tell you about the possible victims first. Since this killer agreed to plead guilty to only two of his possible murders to avoid the death penalty, we don't truly know how many victims there were, but there are several that seem like they could have been his victims. For the purposes of my research, I used the years 1995 to 2007 for reasons that will become clear, and I found several unsolved murders of Anchorage women that all fit a similar victim profile and in which the circumstances of the crimes are quite similar. It's debatable whether Wade could be a true suspect for the murder in 1995 due to his young age at the time, 
but since he would later claim that he had committed murder in his early teen years, it seems entirely likely, or at least possible. As I've previously discussed, there is a disgustingly huge prevalence of crime against Alaska Native women here. It's truly abhorrent. A vast majority of the victims on this list were Alaska Native women. The first woman on the list is Sophie Makar. She was just a few weeks shy of her 45th birthday when her partially clothed body was found in downtown Anchorage under a large wooden pallet on May 12, 1995. She had been strangled and likely sexually assaulted. She was an Alaska Native woman, originally from a tiny village called Stony River in Western Alaska. But at the time of her death, she was living out of a car with her boyfriend in Anchorage, and she left behind six children. On October 7, 1997, the body of Doris Ransom was discovered in a park on the east side of town. She had been beaten to death. She was a 54-year-old Alaska Native woman, originally from Sandpoint, Alaska, a town of around 1,000 people in the Aleutian chain. Unfortunately, I could not find much information about her. On June 6, 1999, the body of Vera Hapoff was found under the Fish Ladder Dam in Ship Creek near downtown Anchorage. Vera was a 25-year-old Alaska Native woman originally from St. Paul Island, a small community of around 500 people located in the Privilof Islands between Alaska and Russia. Vera was well-known and well-liked among the homeless population in Anchorage. She stayed at Brother Francis' shelter regularly and was often seen at Beam's Cafe where she would occasionally volunteer. She'd had a troubled life and had a lengthy criminal record. At one point, she had been involved in sex work and had some involvement in drugs. Nevertheless, she was known as being friendly but independent. People that knew her said she mostly kept to herself and didn't seem to have a specific circle of friends that she hung out with, nor could anyone imagine who would want to kill her. At the time her body was found, police stated that they didn't believe foul play was involved, but for some reason she has since been listed on Anchorage Crime Stoppers as an unsolved homicide. Just two months later, on August 8th, the body of Annie Mann was found lying on the ground behind an abandoned warehouse near downtown Anchorage. Annie was an Alaska Native woman with no criminal record, and I was unable to even find her date of birth. A month later, on September 26, Michelle Foster Butler was found stabbed to death on a street in downtown Anchorage. Michelle was a 38-year-old African-American woman originally from Los Angeles. She had actually just been on a quick walk to the Cars on Gamble, which is a grocery store, and her body was found just a few blocks from her own front door, where she lived with her husband, three children, and mother-in-law. Her husband was in prison at the time of her murder and was never a suspect. On January 11, 2000, the body of Helen Kinnegak was found on the ground outside her house in Mountain View. She had been beaten to death. Holland was a 37 years old Alaska Native woman originally from Bethel, and I was also unable to find much more about her or her murder. The next few discoveries would be the grisliest yet. In June of 2003, two young teenagers made a horrible find in the mud near Beluga Point, which is a popular scenic rest stop about 20 miles south of Anchorage. The unfortunate brother and sister duo came upon a female torso half buried in the mud. The body was missing its head and legs, and it would be over a year before an identification was made. Using a DNA database, the victim's DNA was matched to a family member, and the body was finally identified as 22-year-old Alaska Native woman Desiree Likanoff. Desiree was a small woman, just five foot tall and 100 pounds. She'd had previous run-ins with the law, 
including one arrest for soliciting. She had been reported missing in December 2001, and in the four years leading up to her disappearance, she had been involved in several domestic violence disputes with multiple men, mostly as the petitioner. One has to wonder if any of these men were ever looked at as suspects. It's interesting to note that one of her court appearances for domestic violence was just a few weeks before she was reported missing. She had had a rough life from a young age. She was kicked out of the house as a teenager due to disagreements with her stepfather, who was a domestic abuser. At different points in her life, she was a criminal informant for the police and an exotic dancer and sex worker. At the time of her disappearance, she was involved with a much older man with whom she had an extremely volatile relationship. Just a few months after Desiree's body was found, in September 2003, a father and son who were duck hunting made another chilling discovery. Several miles down the coast from where Desiree's body had been found, another female torso was discovered half buried in the mudflats. This torso was also missing its head and legs, but this body would prove to be more easy to identify because the woman had many tattoos. Investigators were able to remove and rehydrate the skin bearing one of the most distinct tattoos, which was block letters that spelled the word Marty's. When they could examine the tattoo in more detail, they determined that the tattoo was likely done by an amateur, possibly in jail or prison. So they took a photo of the tattoo and took it to Highland Mountain Correctional Institute, which is a woman's facility about 15 miles north of Anchorage. Investigators said that they showed the tattoo around to dozens of inmates there, and after around 30 or so women looked at the picture, they finally looked upon a woman that recognized the tattoo. She quickly and easily identified where on the body that the tattoo had been, which was the lower back, and told them that she was fairly certain the tattoo belonged to a 32-year-old woman named Michelle Roth. Using fingerprints on file and comparing them with the fingerprints of the body, they were able to conclusively identify the body as being that of Michelle's. The 32-year-old white woman had never been listed as a missing person and had last been seen about six months prior to her body being found. Like Desiree, she'd had a troubled life, including many run-ins with the law for offenses including drugs and theft. She had allegedly also worked as a sex worker at one time. Michelle's mother would later say that her daughter came up to Alaska for a fresh start, but after suffering a miscarriage, she spiraled into depression and drug use and was just never able to fully extricate herself from that lifestyle. Investigators believe that both Desiree and Michelle's bodies were probably dumped in the ocean and just happened to wash up on the mudflats. And at the time of the two discoveries, they discussed that they considered them to possibly be linked, possibly murdered by the same person, but it's now 15 years on since their bodies were discovered, and it doesn't seem as though the investigation has gone very far, if out anywhere. The last possible victim we will discuss was murdered in the time period between the two known murders committed by Joshua Wade, which we will be discussing. 35-year-old Alaska Native woman Martha Toms was discovered badly beaten in a park on the east side of Anchorage on September 22, 2005. She was still alive when she was found, but was unable to convey any information about her attacker, and she died shortly after reaching the hospital. Martha, too, had a long criminal record and had experienced problems with alcohol throughout her life, but she still had a family that cared deeply about her and described her as a kind person that had just got caught up in a rough life. She was an Alaska Native woman, originally from St. Michael in Western Alaska near Nome. This list of possible victims should disturb you. So many lives cut short by an unknown person, and in many of these cases, it was extremely hard to find 
even the most basic information about these murdered women. And all of these murders remain unsolved, seemingly thrust into a cold case purgatory from the get-go. It is the simple truth to say that some people in law enforcement just don't care as much about the lives of the more vulnerable members of society, such as women that are deemed to have risky lifestyles. It's a not-so-subtle form of victim-blaming. Like, what do you expect to happen when you're involved in sex work and drugs? But that's just a horrible way of looking at things, because when you treat victims like that, offenders start to see that they make for easy prey, and they likely won't get caught. And besides, I don't care what your lifestyle is, no one deserves to get murdered and dumped on the street like garbage. So yes, this long list of unsolved murders should disgust you. And if you're an Alaskan woman, it should horrify you. And the fact is, I didn't even mention all of the Alaska Native women that were murdered in the same time period some of which did actually get some semblance of justice in the form of an arrest. I also didn't go into the long list of women that went missing in Anchorage in the 90s that were mostly found to have connections to drugs and prostitution. It's scary to live in a city with such a high rate of missing and murdered women that never get any sort of justice and their families never get any sort of answer. While it's unlikely that all or even most of these murders were committed by Joshua Wade, I still felt like their story should be told. The scary truth is that the state tends to appeal to the types of men that have something to run from. In the last 40 years, the state has been terrorized by five known serial killers, four of which specifically targeted women and girls. I'm also entirely convinced there was an active serial killer here in the 90s that was never caught. For more information on the women that went missing during that time period, listen to episode three of this podcast. Three of these five monsters were active in my city in just the last 10 years alone. We had the highest rate of serial murders per capita by far. And that truly makes one think twice about running an errand on these dark winter nights. And while this series is focused on Joshua Wade, I will get to the other four serial killers in time. But for now, I would like to tell you about one of the women that there is no doubt was murdered by Joshua Wade. I must tell you that it's a brutal story and it's likely to fill you with righteous anger as it did me but I will try not to get on my soapbox too much. But just before we get to that, I wanted to take a break for a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Poshmark. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thank you so much to Poshmark for sponsoring this episode. Now back to the story. Della Brown was a 33-year-old Alaska Native woman living in a mobile home in Spinard in Midtown Anchorage. Della had had a rough life. She had been given up for adoption by her biological mother, Daisy, as a baby.
and this had caused her quite a bit of emotional distress throughout her life and feelings of abandonment. This had led to her having problems with alcohol and drug issues as she got older and tried to deal with her emotional distress the best that she could. She also regularly experienced domestic violence at the hands of her live-in partner. In her 20s, an amazing thing happened and she was able to reconnect with her birth mother, Daisy Spigot, who lived in New Mexico with her other children. Daisy had welcomed Della with open arms and Della was also joyfully greeted by her four other half-siblings. They all immediately loved her and welcomed her as a member of their family. She also had an 18-year-old son with whom she was extremely close and who lived very close to her and spent a lot of time with her. She was known by everyone that met her as a kind and caring woman. Unfortunately, she'd already developed a pretty bad problem with alcohol and as an adult was continuing to have a hard time shaking this addiction. It didn't help that her live-in partner was also a drinker and many of her neighbors recalled incidents of her live-in boyfriend beating her when they were drinking or yelling at her and it was hard for them to watch since she was just a kind woman and she was very small but there wasn't anything they could do about it since she continued to stay with him for probably lack of better options. But despite her struggles with alcohol, people remembered her as always having a smile on her face. And she was the kind of person that would offer to make food for any child in the neighborhood that was hungry. She was just that kind of person. Unfortunately, it was her troubles with alcohol that would lead to her being vulnerable on the street on a cold and starry night in September of 2000. Just a month prior, she had received a DUI and had her driver's license revoked when she was pulled over just blocks from home. After the DUI, she and her boyfriend had tried their hardest to stay sober. And just that night, they had made dinner together and had a pleasant and sober evening. However, her boyfriend had then fallen asleep on the couch and it was still early and Della was beginning to feel antsy. She really wanted a drink. With her license revoked, she didn't want to risk driving to the store with a suspended license to get a bottle. So she decided to walk. She checked to make sure that her boyfriend was fully asleep and took a credit card from his wallet and headed outside to walk to the local liquor store. It was a cold night, but the stars were out in full force. And the Aurora Borealis was out that night, putting on a gorgeous spectacle in the sky as she walked to the store. She had done a little bit of cocaine that night and was looking forward to some nice smooth whiskey to even her out to a mellow buzz. A few hours later, a group of men driving in a car came across Della lying unconscious on a street in Spinard. She had drank to the point of passing out. The driver of the car was Joshua Wade. Wade was born in 1980, and on the night of Della Brown's murder, he was just 20 years old. He had the same type of childhood that we see for a lot of serial killers. He was raised by a single mother and he experienced many instances of sexual abuse from someone who was meant to be taking care of him. This happened over a long period of time and it turned Josh into a very angry young man. And strangely enough, though, he did grow to have a lot of rage towards women 
he never expressed any of it towards his mother. He said that she had done the best that she could raising him and it wasn't her fault what happened to him. In his teen years, he began drowning his emotional problems with marijuana and alcohol and eventually harder drugs. He actually had quite a comparable childhood to Della, but while she grew up to be a caring woman with addiction issues, he became a violent, angry person. He lived in another state with his mother until age 13 when he moved to Alaska to live with his father, a known drug dealer. And by age 20, he already had a rather lengthy rap sheet involving arrests for burglary, robbery, and weapons violations. He hung out with a group of young guys that fancied themselves to be badass gang members. They all drank a lot, did drugs, and got into fights. Josh was known among them as having a really quick temper and always being ready to start a fight. And he was known for his extreme dislike of Alaska Natives. So the night that he came across Della Brown when he was driving, he was with his group of buddies slash gang members. And when he saw Della's body in the road, he said that he wanted to run her over. But his friends, though they may be shitheads, said hell no and actually got out and moved her out of the road. She was unconscious and extremely intoxicated. They went over to a buddy's garage where he was working on a car and spent the evening drinking. At one point during the evening, Josh said he wanted to go rob the woman that they had seen in the road. And when he came back much later, he claimed that he had robbed her and possibly sexually assaulted her. At the time, his friends weren't really sure if he was bullshitting them or not, but allegedly, he later took a few friends to a crappy old shed a few streets over where he showed them Della's dead body. The people that reported having seen her body were able to accurately describe some of the injuries that Joshua was said to have inflicted upon her. However, it was never really fully determined if they actually had seen her body or if he had just told them exactly what he had done. Nevertheless, she spent several hours laying in this crappy old shed surrounded by garbage in a place where locals came to do drugs while either dying or already dead. Early the next morning, her body was discovered by passerby who were utterly horrified by what they saw. When investigators viewed the crime scene, they saw what looked like a crime that was committed in an absolute frenzied rage. Della had been beaten numerous times in the head to the point where her skull was just utterly shattered. She had been cut in several places with a knife and had cigarette burns on various parts of her body and other acts of just utter brutality. It was a murder caused by overkill, but also it looked like the murderer had taken his time a little and enjoyed inflicting pain on her. The scene of the crime was accidentally perfect for someone that wants to get away with murder because so many people had been in and out of that shed over the years and in recent times that there was just trash everywhere, discarded cigarette butts, bottles, cans, and all sorts of other things. And the detectives were going to have an extremely hard time trying to find any sort of evidence related specifically to the crime and especially DNA evidence. 
In the days following the murder, investigators were all over the neighborhood canvassing and looking for any sort of evidence. Josh actually left state for a while trying to keep a low profile, but his friends that remained were getting very nervous. Those that either directly or indirectly knew about him committing the crime or perhaps had seen the body began to get very nervous that if Josh was eventually arrested that they might be implicated in the crime in some way. A few of them decided to man up and go to the police. They told varying accounts of the night, but what it came down to was that Josh had left the garage for quite a while and either came back a few times or didn't, but basically gave them information about what he had done to Della and told them he had sexually assaulted her both before she died and afterward. They knew some of the details that hadn't been released in the newspaper and the detectives were intrigued. A couple of these guys, Danny and Romeo, actually agreed to wear wires and try to get Josh to confess to the murder. They were lent a car by the detectives, which was wired for sound, and that day's newspaper was placed in it, which had a front page story about recent unsolved murders of women, including Della and Michelle Foster Butler. Within just a few minutes of getting in the car, Josh looked at the newspaper and began to remark about the murders, saying things like, Oh yeah, that's the bitch, and that's that other bitch. Even though Michelle had been stabbed to death and not beaten, it was obvious to the detectives that saw her crime scene that it had occurred in a frenzy of rage since she had been stabbed repeatedly. So they considered that maybe Josh had really killed both women. Josh's friends tried to get him to say more. They told him that there was no way he could get with somebody as beautiful as Michelle. And Josh just said, not that good looking naked. And he also bragged that the police obviously didn't know everything about him because there were quote, only three women pictured, insinuating that perhaps he had killed many more. He also mentioned the fact that the idiot detectives hadn't even found his condom wrapper that he had apparently left in the shed where he killed Della. Josh had another friend named Jesse that became a CI for the police and wore a wire trying to get Josh to talk about the murders. However, Josh was really suspicious of him right from the start because Jesse had kind of disappeared on Josh after the murder for probably a good reason but now that he suddenly wanted to hang out again, Josh was extremely suspicious and kept demanding to have him lift his shirt because he suspected he was wired. Luckily, Jesse was able to masterfully sort of gaslight Josh into thinking he was acting like a suspicious, paranoid asshole and was able to get out of the situation before Josh tried to look under his shirt for a wire. During his brief conversation with Jesse, Josh let out a little bit more information that was kind of curious. He said that this was a serious situation and could lead to six life sentences, which detectives weren't sure if that meant he had killed six people or what exactly he meant by that since there had only been three women pictured in the newspaper with possible links to Della. Shortly after Jesse was able to get out of that tense conversation, the call was put out to find Josh and arrest him on suspicion of Della's murder. However, when police got to his house, he wasn't there. He had gone home, grabbed a bicycle, and rode off into the night. There was a short manhunt before 
Josh was located hiding at a friend's house. 30 cops surrounded the house and Josh had no other option but to surrender. In his initial interview with the police, Josh was extremely narcissistic and basically thought he was super smart and so much smarter than all the cops. But if he was, I don't think he would have been arrested. And he told the cops straight to their face how idiotic they were that it took them so long to find him. So he obviously wasn't really doing himself any favors. But once he was arrested and booked for murder, it was just the beginning of a long, intense investigation. And Josh sat in jail for two years waiting for his day in court. Finally, the trial began on December 30th, 2002. On the last night that Della was alive, she had called her birth mother while drunk and was crying about the fact that she thought her life would have been so much better if Daisy hadn't given her up for adoption as a child and basically blamed Daisy for her life going down a bad path. Of course, this had led to Daisy feeling horribly guilty since Della died later that same night, and since her murder, Daisy and her family had relocated to Alaska so that they could be in court for every single day of the trial, for every little hearing, because Daisy felt this was the only way she could attempt to make up for not being there for Della for her whole life. A local Alaska Native activist named Disa Jacobson took it upon herself to become Daisy's sort of bodyguard during the trial. She sat with her every day and basically tried to shield her from journalists that were throwing questions at her and was there for her as much as she possibly could be, which I think is just such an incredibly beautiful thing to do, especially for a complete stranger. And it probably, at least I hope, it made the situation even slightly easier for Daisy. The trial became a huge media event in our city. I'm not sure if it made it to national news, but it was a really big story here, and Josh had somehow managed to get one of the best criminal defense attorneys in Alaska, which he wasn't exactly rolling in the dough, so I have to wonder if the attorney did it for the publicity. A jury was chosen, which turned out to be almost entirely white and did not have a single Alaskan native on it. The defense's strategy was to basically point out that all of the evidence against Josh was basically circumstantial and his attorney insisted that when he told his friends about the murder he was just bragging to sound cool. Which does strike me as something that he would do but the fact that he knew details of the murder that no one else knew kind of seems suspicious. Modern juries often expect and sometimes outright demand that there be DNA evidence, which in many crimes there just isn't any DNA evidence. And as Josh himself had said, he used a condom when he sexually assaulted Della, so there was no DNA evidence of him on her body or at the crime scene. And while the prosecution had a seemingly strong case, part of their problem was that their witnesses against Josh were 
all criminals themselves, and many saw them as being untrustworthy. And the defense even tried to point the finger at one or two of them as having possibly committed the murder. And his defense tried to paint Josh as the scapegoat for the crime by corrupt police officers that just wanted to close a case. They claimed that Josh had just stumbled upon Della's body, which is why he knew details of the crime, but the shed was pitch dark and there's just no real way that he could have seen the injuries he described later and there's just no way he could have known about them unless he was the one that did them. Another major problem with the prosecution witnesses is that among them, they did not have a remotely cohesive timeline of the night. They all had drastically different idea of when things happened and what exactly happened. And they ended up being viewed as pretty unreliable. Part of the issue was they had all been drinking quite a bit on the night of the murder and possibly doing other drugs, which, you know, probably screws with your memory. And it also seemed sort of possible that maybe a few of them were changing their own whereabouts during the night so as to remove any suspicion from themselves. But it only made them look like they were lying. And if they were lying about something like that, why couldn't they just be lying about the whole thing? However, they did all agree on one thing about Josh. They all described him as someone with an extreme hatred of Alaska Natives. On the night of the murder, he was quoted as saying that he didn't think Natives should exist and that he was doing Della a favor by murdering her. A statement that I can't even fathom. Those that knew Josh well also described him as someone that was a bit of a contradiction. While he always kept himself perfectly groomed and was always dressed neatly and kept his living space extremely neat, he had moments of explosive temper where he would just go crazy and start fights with people and would basically lose the carefully curated control that he usually kept over his life, which could be seen as being reflected in the frenzied crime scene at Della's murder. But the defense attorney was a shark. One by one, as each prosecution witness came to the stand, he assassinated their characters and discredited them as much as possible. He claimed that because they all drank and did drugs and some of them had committed crimes in the past that there's just no way they could be telling the truth and for some reason had all decided to get together and blame their friend for murder. Two of the most important witnesses were Danny and Romeo who had driven the car that was wired for sound in order to try to get Josh to confess on tape. However, they had been arrested for an unrelated crime after the murder and ended up receiving leniency in exchange for testifying against Josh. However, this information was revealed to the jury, which obviously immediately, you know, prejudice them against them and the two guys were made to testify in their prison jumpsuits which I'm kind of amazed that that would even be allowed and obviously is going to have a prejudicial effect on the jury. The whole trial just felt a little bit like a clusterfuck. However, the prosecution witnesses weren't just his good friends that were there on the night of the murder. Several people had come forward 
whom he had bragged to about the crime within the days and weeks following it. And they all had extremely similar stories about what he had told them and absolutely no reason for trying to get him convicted of murder. Unfortunately, other than the testimony of all of these people, the prosecution didn't really have physical evidence. Josh had gotten rid of the clothes he'd been wearing that night, which many of the guys said they'd seen blood on. The rock, which had been used to beat Della in the head, was never found. And the condom wrapper was also never found. There was absolutely one piece of physical evidence that the police had found, which was a knife they found at Josh's house after he was arrested. When they originally found the knife, it appeared as though it might have spots of blood on it. However, they ended up not using it in court because there was questions as to the chain of custody for it. So they ended up with no physical evidence. The prosecution was dealt another massive blow when one of the main prosecuting attorneys decided to step down from the trial when trial was nearing the end and was replaced by two attorneys that had nowhere near the same amount of experience nor hadn't been working on the case for the last two years. And they were junior lawyers and were seen as being extremely unprofessional in the courtroom. The jury obviously immediately disliked them and didn't trust them. Now at this point, I'm not a judge, but I feel like I would have called a mistrial, but they kept on trucking all through the clusterfuck. And despite the fact that the prosecuting witnesses were made to wear their prison jumpsuits, the jury was not allowed to know about Josh's previous criminal record, which included quite a lengthy amount of crimes because it would be seen as being prejudicial against him, which, what the fuck? Sorry, this is the point in discussing this trial in which my feelings can only really be expressed with four-letter words, so I'm sorry. And because Josh's criminal record was not allowed to be mentioned, Romeo was also not allowed to mention the fact that Josh had been threatening him since the murder, basically saying, you know, don't fucking testify against me or I'm going to kick your ass, that kind of thing. Because that's a crime and his crimes can't be known. Finally, the cluster had been fucked and it was time for the jury to deliberate. Their deliberations would last a week and... It was later revealed that at the very beginning of deliberations, they were immediately nine to three in favor of guilty. However, something during that week changed. I'm not sure what, but out of the many charges that were going against Josh, he was found not guilty of all but one which was tampering with the evidence in relation to him messing with the crime scene after the fact. So they didn't believe that he murdered her, but they did believe that he went to a murder scene and fucked around with the evidence. So I don't even know what to make of that. And that's not even the most infuriating part. Later, some of the jurors would reveal that they actually fully believed that he had done the murder, but they did not give any explanation as to why they went with not guilty. And because of this incomprehensible decision, he was allowed to have his freedom for seven more years, wreak havoc in more lives, commit more crimes, 
and commit at least one more murder. This miscarriage of justice leaves me feeling physically ill even 18 years later, but that's probably because I know what's coming, which we will get to on the next part of this series. But for now, thank you for listening. Thanks for your support. Thank you for your kind five-star reviews, and we will see you next time. Good night.